Good morning, gents. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Happy Monday Thursday to you. Uh, Monday, Monday Thursday. Monday comes from the word mondum, which means commandment. So it's the a new commandment. Thursday, Jesus gave his disciples a new commandment that they should love one another as he has loved them. I want you to know I didn't take last Thursday off. I was teaching a Thursday morning Bible study. Maybe it was about 10,000 miles away, but it was a Thursday morning Bible study in Madano, Sulawesi, Indonesia. Uh, we were there, Dan Burns and I went there because there's an opportunity in that country, which is the largest Muslim country in the world. There's an opportunity there to plant some churches among the poor, especially, and, and among uh, uh, Muslim populations. And so we were there examining that possibility and very grateful to be there and Hopefully something good will come out of it. On my way back, uh, you know, it's a long trip uh, from uh, Jakarta to Singapore for a couple hours, and then Singapore to Japan for about seven hours, and then Japan to Detroit for about a dozen hours. But between Singapore and Tokyo, uh, a young lady in her 20s was sitting next to me from Singapore, and she said, where have you been? I said, Indonesia. She said, what are you doing? I said, well, we're looking at some possibilities uh, for Christian mission, and Indonesia. She said, why would you come all the way over here? She said, you've got plenty of problems right there in Mexico. You could just go, you know, why Indonesia? And uh, I had the opportunity to talk to her about the lordship of Christ over every square inch of the planet and that we had had an invitation to help that we couldn't turn down. She said, oh, okay, that makes sense. Uh, hopefully the gospel made sense to her too. And we talked about that. Uh, but I'm glad to be back, and especially on this day and this week, we call it Holy Week, because from Palm Sunday when Jesus entered Jerusalem until his crucifixion, he was teaching passionately, and he was facing opposition. And you see that in the gospel accounts, uh, in all the gospel accounts. But here in Matthew, you see that he, he engages the Pharisees. If you look back in chapter 23, You'll see, and by the way, we're, we're in chapter 24 today, and thanks to Gary for covering that very important issue last week of forgiveness, uh, how important it is for us to be sure that we are the forgivers on this earth. Christian men are to be forgiving men. Those two things go together. You cannot follow Christ unless you forgive uh, others who sin against you. We saw that last week. Now we're on to the fifth sermon in Matthew. It's called the Sermon on the Mount, Olivet. <laughs> it's called the Olivet Discourse. It is on the mountain of Olivet, uh, the Mount of Olives. So we call it the Olivet Discourse. And chapters 24 and 25 make up this sermon. You can tell, once again, because of the signature closing on chapter 26. If you look at that, it's, it says again, when Jesus had finished all these sayings, so on and so forth. That's, that's the signature closure to these uh, five sermons. So we know that uh, chapters 24, 25, some people include chapter 23. But in 23, uh, Jesus is confronting Pharisaical religion. And he pronounces woes or judgments on the scribes and the Pharisees, the clergy of the day, uh, because how, of the ways in which they had distorted uh, Old Testament religion, God's revealed word. And we do that all the time. We constantly are trying to take what God says and what God means 
and co-opt it into our lives. And here, of course, in Memphis, what we do is we try to co-opt what he says into a materialistic culture. We try to make the Bible say what we want it to say so that we can continue our aspirations for success and power and money and privilege and convenience and comfort. And you'll find many, many ways in which we distort God's Word and the intention behind the Word in order to make ourselves comfortable. Everybody does that to some extent. That's the reason we keep coming back to the Word. And that's also the reason that we study in fellowship with other people. I mean, to be around the table while you're studying the Bible, and many of you in these small groups, is very important because what happens is you, you get to check your own perspective and the way you're interpreting the Scriptures uh, with the perspectives of other people. That's, that's, that's the reason the church is so important because otherwise we would fairly consistently take the Bible and distort it so that we don't have to change it all, so we're never humbled, we're never confronted, and, and we, we distort what we hear. Well, that's exactly what had been happening in Israel for a thousand years. They had been distorting what God had said to them. And Jesus, when he comes as the Word of God incarnate, knowing fully the intent of the Old Testament, confronts them in how they had distorted the Bible to ingratiate and empower themselves instead of empowering and serving other people. And some people will include chapter 23 in the Olivet Discourse, but we call it the Olivet Discourse because here in chapter 24, he actually does go up to the Mount of Olives and teaches there. Now, the Mount of Olives is a very significant place. As you know from Zechariah chapter 14, you have the prediction that, that God is going to return in judgment on the Mount of Olives. So that's in the minds of everybody. The Mount of Olives is a very, very important place in the minds of most people, most uh, Jews. So Jesus goes there to give this discourse. Now we're going to see, uh, and those of you who are at Second Presbyterian, of course, we've uh, just coincidentally uh, on Sunday mornings in our study in Mark, we, we've already hit the Olivet Discourse. We've been through it already this, these past three weeks. We're going to look at it again from a slightly different perspective in Matthew. And here we see how important it is for disciples to take in what we call apocalyptic literature. Uh, we often dismiss apocalyptic because it's so difficult. Apocalypse means to reveal. <laughs> Strangely enough, usually when you think of apocalypse, you think of something that's concealed. But apocalypse comes from the, the word which just means take the lid off to show us something. And in this apocalypse, uh, apocalyptic literature, whether it's Daniel or Revelation or all of it discourse, what's happening is God is giving us a grand view, a grand vision of the future. You know, in 1984, George Orwell, uh, he said at one point in that book, if you want a picture of the future, imagine a boot stomping on the human face forever. There's Orwell's picture of the future. A boot stomping on a human face forever. There it is. Well, Jesus has a different view of future. And of course, we're going to see the future does have a boot stomping on the human face. But that's not the end of the story. It's not forever. There's something turns decisively. And it's important for us to have a, an accurate view of the future because that inspires our present behavior. And we want to be men who are marching relentlessly toward 
Jerusalem, the new city of God coming down out of heaven. We, we're men who are optimistic, theologically, not psychologically. I'm not talking about whether you're naturally a pessimist or an optimist. I'm talking about your theological view. And theologically, eschatologically, if you're a follower of Christ, you are an optimist. You know how the future is going to turn out. The apocalyptic literature of the Bible is like uh, uh, Peterson uh, calls it a uh, literary video. And he says, you know, when you go to the movies, you don't dissect every little frame on the movie. No, you get an impression from the whole movie. And he said, people often misunderstand apocalyptic because they want to take every little frame and dissect it and be sure they figure out exact meanings and every little symbol. And he said, it's meant to be a movie to leave you an impression. And that's the way, as we, when we studied Revelation some years ago, we saw that that was important to look at Revelation that way. Let it be a movie. Let it, let it be a literary video that shows us the whole scope of history. And let it inspire you. Apocalyptic is meant to inspire you. And if you look at Daniel, you see the same thing. This mighty rock that comes and crushes all the nations that men establish in this world. And that rock grows and grows and grows. And the Son of Man comes and rules and reigns. That's what you get out of apocalyptic. Now, the Olivet Discourse is doing that plus something else. The Olivet Discourse is showing us the ultimate triumph of God, which is what apocalyptic in the Bible does for us. But it's also showing us the judgment of God on the religion of men when we take the Bible and distort it. And you can expect it. The first place that Christ is going to judge when He returns is the church and all the ways in which we have distorted the truth of God. And we have done that over and over again. The liberal tradition has done it, and the conservative tradition has done it. And we've done it because we want our lives to be more convenient. The conservative tradition uh, finds ways somehow, uh, largely in the past 100 years, to ignore the poor and to ignore social injustice. How the conservative church, the church that claims to be hanging on to the Bible at word for word, can do that, I have no idea except for deeply embedded sin in our members. The members of our body, as Paul says, we have residual sin. And that sin is powerful. And if it goes unchecked, we can do all kinds of things. We can ignore the rights of our neighbors in the name of Jesus. The liberal church, on the other hand, they can ignore the resurrection. So when it comes to Easter, they'll be talking about the burst of springtime or something like that. They have no idea of a bodily resurrection, which means that we too are bodily going to be raised. How they can miss the resurrection, like in, like in the Corinthian church. And Paul had to go back to ABCs with them in 1 Corinthians 15 about the resurrection. How they can do that, I have no idea, except that they've already decided the miraculous is silly. And they just, the liberal church has just completely dismissed the miraculous, gone all the way through the Bible and dismissed anything that's miraculous. What a silly thing to do. You just remove your salvation when you do that. So both conservative and liberal churches can ignore the obvious because of the power of our selfishness and the power of our lack of faith. Well, here you have Jesus confronting the religion of his own day. And we're going to see that he pronounces a judgment upon that religion and that it's going to be destroyed and what happens with the salvation of Christ is he not only brings to us the beauty of new life, but he destroys the old life. When you come to him, you experience the beauty of new life, 
the beauty of following Christ, but you also experience the destruction of your old life. And if you haven't burned those bridges, gentlemen, you better burn them today because when you come to Christ, there's a new bridge built for you to, to life in Christ, but there's a raging fire behind you, all those old bridges to your old way of living, they're gone. So when you come to Christ, there's always a judgment on the old life, the self-destructive life. And you'll find with the church at large, there's a judgment. And here is a mighty judgment as we're going to see. So the coming of Christ, first coming and second coming, means judgment on everything that opposes the good news of, of the kingdom of God. And we need to be ready to receive that, first of all, in our own lives, let His judgment take place in our own lives and destroy the biases and to destroy the sinful inclinations and to, to destroy the false idols, the, the, the false gods, the idols of our lives, uh, just at the same time that He erects the beautiful new uh, faith in, in God that He gives us. Well, let's take a look at chapter 24, and uh, you'll notice that he's, he begins with a description of the present age. And that's what we're going to study today. If you look at verse 15 at the bottom of page 1873 there, he talks about the abomination of desolation. Now what we're going to see there is that he is, to, he is presenting to us, I believe, what's going to happen in A.D. 70 when the abomination of desolation is set up in the temple of God and the Romans invade Jerusalem and destroy it, uh, not one stone left upon another, and so on. And then we're going to see that he talks in verses 29 following, even uh, as far back as uh, uh, around 25, 26, he talks about the coming of the Son of Man. So the great conclusive event of history as we know it now will be the return of the Son of Man. And then he teaches us how to anticipate that return. So you get it. The first part is how we interpret the present time and then how we interpret the events of 70 A.D. and then how we look for the return of Christ. Before we read the text, why don't we go ahead and look at this handout. Those of you who studied Revelation here or were in church with us the past three weeks a second have seen this sort of thing. And what I want you to see, let's look at the, the second one with the charts, uh, the four views of the millennium. And uh, I know this is very confusing to most people. Let me see if I can just help straighten this out just a little bit in a few minutes. Uh, this can be very confusing because you've got different Christians, legitimate Bible-believing Christians, who will look at apocalyptic material in different ways. They look at verses and put them in different contexts in their minds. And so they interpret the scope of history differently and it gets very confusing when you're listening to them and they disagree with each other and you're sitting there thinking, I don't think I agree with either one of them. But let's look at how this all works. The reason we call it views of the millennium is because most people who are describing their view of revelation, and the Olivet Discourse is closely related to revelation as well as to Daniel, but when they're describing their view of uh, the end times and the scope of history, they'll describe it in view of the millennium. Now, what is a millennium? A millennium comes from the Greek word, which means 1,000 or 1,000 years. So people will describe their view of the end times based on how they see the return of Christ with respect to the millennium. So here's the millennium, okay? Does Jesus come here or does he come here? Does he come at the beginning of the millennium 
Or does it become at the end of the millennium? That's the big debate. So you're either pre-millennial, that means the, a, a pre-millennial return of Christ, or you're a post-millennial, that means a post-millennial return of Christ. Now, here are the four views that are common among Bible-believing people. The first one we call pre-tribulational premillennialism. And what does that mean? It means that Jesus comes to take his saints before the tribulation, so-called great tribulation, and before the millennium. Now, this is known by most people as dispensationalism. And you'll see here, Israel's coming along in the Old Testament, and then Christ comes in his first advent where the cross is there. And then you have Christ's ascension, and right after his ascension, you have the Holy Spirit. With that Holy Spirit, the pre-trib pre-mill says, the Holy Spirit established the church, and the church is made up largely of Gentiles. But God still is going to make his promises come true in the Jewish nation. So he's got parallel tracks. This is pre-trib, pre-mill. You've got promises given to Old Testament Israel, and that continues forward through Christ. Then you have the Holy Spirit coming and including Gentiles, and they're on a Gentile track. And then the pre-trib, pre-mill person says that Christ first comes to rapture the Gentile Christians, the church. And with the church, the Holy Spirit is also taken up to meet the Lord in the air. And the Jewish nation continues on the earth and enters into what is known as the Great Tribulation or the Trouble of Jacob. And it lasts seven years, and that comes from Revelation. During that same time, you can see there's a marriage supper of the Lamb in the heavenlies. So the Gentiles are having a great old time up there with Jesus and the marriage supper of the Lamb. And our Jewish friends are down here on the earth under a massive tribulation, which is purging them and so on. And you have the, uh, uh, then you have the coming of Christ again to the earth to judge. And he issues in the uh, millennium, the 1,000 years of peace on the earth, the restoration of Israel, the restoration of Jerusalem. And then during that 1,000 years, you see, the pre-trib, pre person says that all those Old Testament promises of a land of milk and honey, the restoration of Jerusalem and Israel, it's all taking place then in the millennium. So all the promises come true. That millennium is very important then to them because that's where the Old Testament promises are fulfilled. And then, of course, Christ comes for the final, the final judgment uh, at the end. And that's pre-trib, pre-millennialism. It's very popular among dispensationalists. Then you have what's known as post-tribulational premillennialism. That is, Christ comes after the tribulation and before the millennium. And you can see the difference there is that there's not so much comment about the Jewish nation. Um, it's not quite as distinct between Jew and Gentile. But you do have a great tribulation through which we all go and then you have Christ's second coming, and at that point he sets up the thousand-year millennium, and during that time there is the restoration of ethnic Israel with the, new, the Jerusalem reestablished and so forth, and then Christ comes at the end. Now let's look at the very bottom, and you have post-millennialism. Once again, there's an, a thousand-year period, but Christ comes at the end of the thousand-year period, and here the millennium is seen as a period of global revival and renewal. So... Christ ascends into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes, and at the end of this present age, 
There is a 1,000-year period that God ushers in when there is global peace and revival and the nations are coming under the Lordship of Christ. We enjoy that for a 1,000 years. And then Christ comes at the end to judge and ushers in the new heavens and the new earth. Now, Tim Russell on our staff uh, uh, is a post-millennialist. Tim, as you know, is African-American, and he's uh, going to New England uh, in June to be the headmaster of Lexington Christian Academy, a very fine evangelical school there. And Tim says when he goes to New England, he's going to establish the African-American post-millennial New England society. And he says he will be president because he'll be the only one there. Uh, Now, uh, let's look fourthly at amillennialism. Amillennialism actually is a form of post-millennialism because Christ comes after the millennium. But you'll notice what the millennium is. To the amillennialist, the millennium is a symbol, like many other symbols in Revelation. It's a symbol simply uh, suggesting a period of time. And that period of time is this, uh, this church age. It's the age that we're in now. So that we are actually in the millennium, says the amillennialist. Uh, of course, amillennial technically means no millennium. But actually there is a millennium. It's just not literally a thousand years. And it's the age of the Spirit, the church age. And you'll see that in amillennialism, the new Israel is Jew and Gentile together. So no longer are Jew and Gentile separated with separate promises applied to each group, some promises to the Gentiles and some promises to ethnic Israel. No, no, no. The amillennialist, you can tell I'm one, the amillennialist says we're all together in the church and the church is the new Israel and all the promises of God, says Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, all the promises of God, what promises would those be? Those would be the Old Testament promises. All the promises of God find their amen or their yes in Jesus Christ. So there's not, the amillennialist says, there's not one promise in the Old Testament that doesn't apply to you personally if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. Because when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you become a child of Abraham. That's what Paul says in Galatians and in Romans. So now you're a child of Abraham, an heir according to promise. What does that mean? That means all the promises that were given to Abraham of a new nation, a new land, and so on, belong to the brothers and sisters of Jesus Christ, who is the seed of Abraham. So the amillennialist is saying, no, this is all of us together. We're all going to inherit the promises that will come to us in full order at the second coming of Christ and the new heavens and the new earth will come to us out of heaven itself. God will bring the new Jerusalem. So we're not looking for a future on the other side of the Mediterranean. We're looking for a future on the other side of the heavens that's going to come down to us, a very physical new heavens and new earth. That's amillennialism. Now those are the four views that people hold and you can fairly quickly tell where someone's coming from after they utter about three sentences if you've been in this for a while. Uh, uh, Any one of you who's experienced, you could tell from the moment I started talking, I was an amillennialist. Now, look at the previous page, and you see some interpretive frameworks. The frameworks we were just looking at were eschatological frameworks. They were frameworks of how chronology and the end times are going to happen. 
Here are interpretive frameworks. That is how you look at the Bible and interpret. And there are typically four of these. And they typically sort of align with one of the eschatological frameworks. Preterist is one who is typically post-mill. I don't know if Tim Russell is a preterist, but a lot of post-mills are preterists. What does preterist mean? That means pretty much everything in the book of Revelation has to do with that consummating event in 70 AD when the judgment of God fell upon Jerusalem and there was a spiritual coming of the Son of Man there to rule and to judge over the old religion in 70 AD. You'll find their interpretations of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse to be focused primarily and almost solely on 70 AD, which means that the book of Revelation was written for first century people to understand what had just happened in 70 AD. The historicist, on the other hand, looks at Revelation and sees it as a revelation of history from the time of Christ up until the present time. And it's interesting when you look at the historicist perspective, if you read a 17th century historicist, the book of Revelation really ends with the events in the 17th century. If you read a 20th century historicist, the book of Revelation ends with the historical events in the 20th century. It's kind of interesting that historicists typically see the book of Revelation leading right up to their present time and thus the uh, invitation to believe that Christ is coming in their century. Uh, But basically what a historicist is saying is that the book of Revelation is about present history as we know it. And people will fit in the Roman Empire and all the Caesars and the things that happened in medieval period and the Reformation and all the rest uh, to fit that scheme. The third one is the futurist. And this is the one we're probably most familiar with. And this typically goes along with a pre-trib, pre-mill perspective or even the historical pre-mill perspective where the book of Revelation is largely about the future. And after you get to the uh, two chapters, chapters two and three about the seven churches from chapter four onward is really about future events yet to occur. That's the futurist. That would, a dispensationalist would consistently be a futurist interpreter of Revelation and the Olivet Discourse. And then there's the idealist. And these are typically amillennialist. And, you know, sure enough, that's what the way I see it. That the idealist says that what Olivet Discourse and particularly what Revelation is doing is giving us a philosophy of history. It's the literary video that gives us the scope of God's work in time and its relationship to eternal life. And that he's showing, he's showing us through this living literary video that Christ is king and that history has meaning because it's connected to the ultimate conclusion of all things. That's a philosophy of history. And all the symbols that are in Revelation are simply useful to pointing to certain realities in history. And the idealist typically sees seven recapitulations of history in Revelation. And you see them listed there. Where it goes across history this way, backs up, goes through history again, backs up, goes through history again. And all seven times you're getting different aspects of God's rule over all of history. That's the idealist. Now, why would we take our time this morning to look at that? Well, because when you're reading books on Revelation or listening to sermons or teachings on the Olivet Discourse, you need to know from what perspective the teacher's coming. 
if you know that, for example, if you're a committed historical premillennialist this morning, you can listen to me and say, well, I don't agree with his idealism and his amillennialism, but I can see certain truths he's pointing out in the scriptures, and then I can put them into the framework that I believe is the more accurate one. So that's the reason for looking at these things so that we know how to benefit from the teaching of other people who may have slightly different views on this. Now let's look then. We're backing up to Matthew 24, the first 14 verses. And here we're going to see Jesus' interpretation of present time events. What are the meaning? What is the meaning of it? And let's look at it and then apply it to our lives. Matthew 24, verse 1. Jesus left the temple and was going away when his disciples came to point out to him the buildings of the temple. But he answered them, You see all these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. As he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ and they will lead many astray. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you are not alarmed for this must take place. But the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines and earthquakes in various places. All these are but the beginning of the birth pains. Then they will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death and you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end will be saved." And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. Okay, let's look first of all at the first two verses. And we see here that fruitless religion will be destroyed. Fruitless religion will be destroyed. That's just what we were saying, that when Jesus comes, He comes to give us a very vivid, positive view of the future. The only way you're going to get that is if you destroy your negative views of religion and of the future. When they were leaving the temple, and by the way, just turn uh, about three pages in your Bible, pages 1878 and 1879, and there you see a, 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 a rendition of what the old Jerusalem would have looked like in Jesus' day. And uh, you can see that the wall um, contained the city, and the temple mount there on the right-hand side would take up about one-sixth of the old city. And if you look at that temple, you can see that is a massive, uh, that is a massive complex of buildings and stones. It was very impressive. Uh, it, in fact, turn, you can leave your finger there, but turn over to pages 1924 and 1925, and you get a close-up view of this same artist's rendition. This temple is about 300 yards by 500 yards. For example, on page 1924, from the left to the right is 300. And then on page 1925, the other dimension, that's about 500 yards. 
So if you take the entire campus of Second Presbyterian Church, it's about that size. That's how big the Temple Mount area was. Then if you look on that corner that's closest to you, that's about 14 stories high from the ground looking up to the top corner of that. It's huge. So if you're walking away from that temple area, you see all this masonry. You know how it, how it feels when you, when you go to Washington, D.C.? You know, if you go to New York, you just if you're from Memphis, you just find yourself looking like this all the time. I still do it. I mean, I've been in New York dozens of times. And I'm just, just amazed. All these big buildings, they're just incredible. When I go to Washington, I feel the same way, except it's just the mass of the stonework, all the granite in Washington. It's just very impressive, isn't it? And that's the way these disciples felt. They were walking away from the temple, and they just looked back. And in Mark, it's a little bit more explicit. They say, Jesus, look at that. That's just amazing, isn't it? Furthermore, Josephus, the first century Jewish historian, tells us something about the size of the stones. Uh, Forty feet. What is that? Almost, uh, this is maybe a little bit more than 40. John Amson, you know, it's a little bit more than 40, but maybe close to 40 feet this way. Uh, they say that many of the stones were 40 feet long, 12 feet high, 18 feet deep. How in the world do you move a stone like that? I have no idea. In our day, I have no idea. How in the world did you do it in the first century B.C.? Moving stones that size, huge limestones. And they were, if you go to the, the Western Wailing Wall, which here's what the Western Wall is. On page 18, 1924, you see it's the, the left-hand side is where it says Robinson's Arch and its massive stairway. Right along that way, that wall is the little bit that remains. After the Romans destroyed it, they left a few stones on the Western Wailing Wall. And the Jews there, of course, you know, today will go there to pray. That's the only part of the temple left. If you go down below, and you can do that, you can go down several feet below surface and see some of these stones, and you just can't believe what you're looking at. Stone after stone laid on each other in courses to make this massive temple area. Well, the disciples, they were impressed, just like I'm impressed when I go to New York or Washington or if I flying a 747 like I did the other day. I just can't believe that thing gets off the ground. It's just unbelievable. And I'm, I'm amazed. I guess every guy is, you know, with things that big. And these guys were impressed with their, with their Vatican, with the size and the beauty of the work. And Josephus furthermore says that uh, the, the temple was, if you, if you back in the Matthew uh, artist rendition here on page 1879, that temple was beautiful white stones that Herod had built, Herod the Great, he had doubled the size of Solomon's temple. You know, the, the second temple was kind of puny, and the old people, when they came back from Babylon, wept when they saw it because it was nothing like Solomon's temple that had been destroyed. Well, Herod built this thing to be twice the size of Solomon's temple, and it was beautiful white stones gilded with gold. And Josephus says when the sun rises... And if you look at it this way in your Bible, here you've got the, the temple mount here and the sun is rising over the Mount of Olives on, in the morning. And, and Josephus says, when, if you stand on the Mount of Olives and the sun's rising behind you and shining onto the temple, it is so bright you can't look at it because all that gold is just reflecting the sun and it blinds you. And they, he said, if you looked at it 
from far away, if you could see the Temple Mount, it looked like it was a snow-capped mountain because the highest stones were those beautiful white limestone stones. So it was absolutely gorgeous. And the disciples were remarking upon it, which was to say, in a way, uh, since it was one of the wonders of the world and the most beautiful building in that entire region, uh, it's, you know, the disciples were obviously saying, isn't the temple beautiful? Which is to say, isn't our religion the greatest in the world? And they were tying it to their stuff, their beautiful buildings, their facilities, all this. And Jesus uh, had an answer for them. He says, truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. In other words, Jesus is saying, gentlemen, don't base your faith on stuff. And don't base your faith on the beauty of your prayer book or the beauty of your traditions or the beauty of your buildings or your paraments or your wonderful rituals or anything else. Because when the judgment of God comes, it will judge all this human stuff And what will be left is what is built by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ and Him alone. So don't become simply a religious advocate. You must be a disciple of Jesus Christ and there is a big difference. And He was teaching them that here, one day, even these religious buildings are going to be judged because they house hypocrisy. And so many religious buildings do. Where do you find the most unfaithful religious activity among people who call themselves Christians? In the wealthiest institutions in the country. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, all of them founded upon the gospel to put out ministers for New England and the Mid-Atlantic. And now you find them just railing against Christianity in large part. Where do the liberals always find themselves they inheriting all the buildings and all the institutions and all the colleges and universities, all the stuff. Well, let me tell you what's going to happen when Jesus comes back. All that stuff is getting judged. You don't want to be attached to just stuff. You must always be a pioneer. You must always be ready to innovate. You must always be willing to go out without anything in order to follow Jesus and have Him. And I don't mean to, I don't mean to hold in contempt uh, your favorite institutions. Uh, look, I'm a graduate of the University of Virginia. Uh, Thomas Jefferson, I should say Mr. Jefferson, of course, is a Virginia graduate. Uh, Mr. Jefferson liked to take his Bible and slice out all the miraculous parts of it, and that was his Bible. So uh, I, I, don't, I don't claim that my, my alma mater is any better than anybody else's. All I'm saying is the tendency for hypocritical religious people is to hang on to stuff, buildings, institutions, names, legacies, and that becomes their religion rather than faithful discipleship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, in verses 3 through 8, we find that fruitless speculation will be frustrated. You're going to be frustrated if what you're doing with apocalyptic and eschatological chronology is to try to speculate when Jesus is coming back. And here's why. You don't know. At one point, Jesus said, the Father's appointed the time and even the Son doesn't know. So you're telling me you know something Jesus doesn't know. And all these people who are trying to tell you, they have things called the rapture index, you know. When's the rapture going to happen? Well, it depends on how many earthquakes and how many volcanoes and how many wars are going on and what's happening in the Middle East and who's getting the oil. and has nothing to do, nothing, big fat zero, nothing to do with God's timetable. 
And all these charts, you get these TV preachers, and you look at all these charts, you know, from the beginning of Adam and Eve all the way to the end, and interpreting everything for you in the current newspaper, tell you all the meaning of the stuff in the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, and its eschatological significance. You can just turn your TV off. It's worthless, totally worthless. Nobody knows. And Jesus is explaining this here. He says, first of all, your curiosity itself is misguided. As he said on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the close of the age? Does he answer that question? No. He answers a more important question, which is, what do you do now? How do you live? That's the question he's going to answer. He doesn't answer their foolish question. Why are we so curious? We look at eschatological material and what we want out of it is, when is it all going to happen? It's kind of like, you know, if you, if you who are in the investment business, if you knew when the market correction was going to come, all you need is one of those and you can retire. All you need is to know one correction, a 10% correction, even take, you know, 5, 7, 8% correction. If you knew it for sure, you can retire on that, not peaceful, piece of information. We always want to know what's going to happen in the future. We want to take advantage of it. And furthermore, if we know when Jesus has come back, we can live like hell until then and then kind of clean up our life. I mean, I suppose there must be some reason people want to know exactly when it's going to happen. Some people are control freaks. They don't like anything out of their control. When is it going to happen? And Jesus is saying, you're asking the wrong question. It's fruitless. It's not going to lead to a holier life for you to know when it's going to happen. It's not. If it would, he would have told you. Because anything that leads to life and godliness, he gives you. You have everything you need for life and godliness in that book. Everything. When the Holy Spirit comes into your life, places that Bible in your lap, you've got what you need. And what you want to do is base your life on what you're given, not on what you think you need to know in order to live your life. So our curiosity is misguided. And, it, you know, at one point I mentioned this to our our folks here second. You know, Martin Luther was asked one day, well, what would you do if you knew that Jesus were coming back tomorrow? You know what he said? Plant a tree. In other words, your life needs to be lived in such a way that you're ready for him to come back at any point. Just keep right on living and doing what you're doing if you knew what the end was. But no, if we know the end is coming, what do we do? Go to the store, get all the water, get up into a, you know, a cave somewhere and lock ourselves up and sit there looking up, waiting for Jesus. That's what we do. That's the reason he didn't tell us, you little idiot. So our curiosity is misguided. Live a Christian life. Live out social justice, the proclamation of the gospel, and mercy ministry, full tilt until you see them face to face. That's what we're supposed to do. Secondly, our charlatans are misleading. And boy, do we have a bunch of them. They usually have nice hairdos and they're on TV. And Jesus answered them, See that no one leads you astray. For many will come in my name saying, I am the Christ. And they will lead many astray. There are James Joneses and David Koresh's. And then there are people who do it more subtly. Who are always trying to draw attention to themselves. Who are religious leaders. Who make you think you can't really live your Christian life without them. That you can't really understand the Bible without them. That you, your church can't really go forward without them. They have a messianic complex. And the people of God are led astray by people with messianic complexes. And Jesus is saying, cut the baloney. You're all little messiahs. That's what Christians mean. Christianos means a little Christ, a little messiah. We're all in Christ. 
We're all his brothers. He's called us together to be the community that waits for him and serves him. So there are false prophets through every generation. There are in ours as well, and we need to be aware of them. Uh, Then thirdly, verses 6 and 7, our crises are misinterpreted. We hear of wars and rumors of wars. we got 40 of them going on right now, 40 wars in the world. And we say, man, this is more wars. There have been more bloodshed in the 20th century than all the centuries before, and that's true. Jesus must be coming back soon. Wrong. All the wars and the rumors of wars means nothing. Would you please look at the language? He says, but the end is not yet, verse 6. Can I say it again? The end is not yet. Would you please memorize that part of that verse? The end is not yet. Earthquakes, volcanoes, natural disasters, plagues, wars, 9-11, invasions of the Middle East, means nothing on the eschatological chart. It means something with respect to the sovereign, sovereignty of God over all of history. It certainly means something. But it doesn't mean anything about knowing when the end is coming. And all these books written by these preachers trying to tell us the significance of what's going on in the Middle East and its relationship to the return of Christ are wasting your time and theirs. Why don't they preach the gospel and get on with it? And let's live life as we're supposed to live. That's what Jesus is saying. Cut the stuff out. So our crises are misinterpreted and this has happened in Jesus' time and under the Apostle Paul in 2 Thessalonians, you find the same thing. They were very confused about this. They thought the end was immediate, so they stopped working. You know, some people do that. Some Adventists, you know, will stop their, quit their jobs, go up to a mountain and wait on Jesus. Well, you're going to go to the mountain and wait on Jesus and get hungry is what you're going to do uh, because Jesus told you not to do that. Don't misinterpret the, the events of present history. Then thirdly, lastly, Verses 9 through 14, we find that during this present time, this, remember this is what Jesus is talking about, the present time. He's going to talk about uh, future events a little later in this chapter, in this sermon. And he's going to talk about the meaning of his judgment in chapter 25. What that, what's that judgment going to be like and what do we need to do to prepare for it? But here he's talking about the meaning of the present time and he's teaching us that faithful disciples will be tested. So if you want to know the meaning of the time right now, it is that you and I are being tested. Just like Jesus was tested when he went into the wilderness. You're being tested right now. And there's a purpose for this test. All kinds of purposes. The main one being to glorify God, just as Jesus did in the wilderness. He glorified his Father by taking the word of God and using it as a sword against the evil one until he fled, until the evil one fled from him. And that's exactly what we're to do. We're to glorify God by taking the things that we believe by faith and applying them in this wretched world and with confidence that He's alive and that He's the Lord and that He will help us. And that's what Jesus did. We're in the wilderness too. We're going to face these trials. And then, of course, as we face these tests, we're being shaped into the image, into the very conformity of His Son. Paul teaches us in Romans 8 that all things work together for good for those who are called according to His purpose. What is good? Here's what good is. For those who have been predestined, been predestined to be conformed to the likeness of His Son. That's good. That's what the good is. So your tests are 
part of what God is using to shape you into the very likeness of Jesus. That's, what he, that's the only way He can shape sinners is to put us through tests so that we become more like Him. So first of all, notice in verses 9 through 12, our tests are severe. And Paul says this to the early church in Acts 14, 22, when they go back to encourage the churches. What do they encourage them with? Well, look at Acts 14, 22, and you'll see that Paul and Barnabas teach them they're going to be facing severe trials, that everyone will be persecuted uh, who seeks to live a godly life, as Paul says to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, 12. So if you're following Christ, you will be persecuted. And what you must do is not bow to the persecutions, not fear the persecutions, not boast in the persecutions, but boast in Christ through the persecutions and realize this is natural for the Christian. Now, sometimes, many times, we do stupid stuff and we get persecuted because we're stupid. But there are other times when we are genuinely being persecuted because of the name of Jesus Christ that is on us. And I know from my own working experience in, in business that there, there are those scorns and moments when others are holding you in contempt because they see you as a prude, a square, no fun, or whatever it is, just because you're following Christ. That's going to happen, Jesus says. Uh, then he says it's going to happen in three or in two realms. First of all, in the world. And it's going to come through physical threats and social scorns. Both of those. And he says you will, they will deliver you up to tribulation. And that's the reason the amillennialist believes we're in the millennium now and we're in the tribulation right now. The reason that, in my opinion, pre-mill, pre-trib, pre-mill eschatology is so popular is because we Americans have to figure out some way to explain these tribulations because we're not being tribulated. We got it easy. So to say that we're in tribulation now doesn't make much sense because we're not facing a tribulation. But let me tell you, this is a, this is a minority report that there will be no tribulations. Where I just was this past week, I tell you, they've got tribulations. Christians can't get into med school. You can't get in because the dominant religion only is allowed in med school. That's a, that's a form of tribulation. If you go to China, some of my friends there are thrown into prison for years for preaching the gospel. They say that they're not the persecuted church. They're only the oppressed church because they're not being killed. They say some of their friends in other nations are in the persecuted church. And you go to those nations and sure enough, they share the gospel and get their head taken off. Now there's tribulation. We happen to be in a very privileged time and a privileged place. But Jesus is saying that throughout this present age, Christians are going to be persecuted and just realize this is part of your job. is to display the gospel to the world as you're being persecuted. And the quality of life in Christ is most graphically demonstrated when you're being persecuted. Do you realize that when you're being persecuted, you now have the microphone? Do you realize now you get to give your sermon? Why? Because everybody's looking at you. They want to see how you're going to react. When you're being mistreated, this is when you got everybody's attention. When Dr. Martin Luther King was mistreated in the Birmingham jail, 
And then he wrote that classic letter, one of the greatest, finest pieces of literature written in American history. He had the attention of the entire world upon him. Boy, did he ever make good use of that. And you do the same thing when you're facing those moments when you're being marginalized or mistreated because you're a believer. Make the most of it. Display the character of Christ. This is your moment. Jesus says it here. You're going to be facing physical threats and social scorns. And certainly, you know what I'm talking about. You're also going to face it in the church. Verses 10 through 12. He says, many will fall away. There'll be schisms. Many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. He's talking about Israel. He's talking about God's people. He's talking about the church. And you see it now. The church is divided. The church betrays people. It's awful, but it happens. Secondly, there'll be heresy. Many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And we have heresies right and left. We have those who are proclaiming open theism for the past 20 years. That is that God not only doesn't control the future, He doesn't know the future. He's open to whatever happens. He's just reacting. That's open theism. It's complete heresy. It doesn't even belong in the, in the realm of Christian theism. We've got the emergent, not the emerging, but the emergent church and its full embracing of postmodernism with Brian McLaren and others proclaiming uh, that there is no such thing as conservative or liberal or uh, this or that, and no heaven, no hell, uh, that we're just living life, and there are no categories, and there's no absolute truth. They're embracing all of this, calling themselves Christians. It's nothing but a heresy. Uh, we've got the Jesus Seminar with Marcus Borg, and these are people that are brought to town here to preach in churches here in Memphis. Marcus Borg is a flaming heretic who says that uh, the New Testament is a lot of it is not, not original, not real. Usually the miraculous parts never happened, uh, and they're redefining who Jesus is. And then we've got the prosperity gospel that's everywhere, mostly on TV. You've got Benny Hinn over here for one type of people, uh, the, the Charismatics and Pentecostals, and then you've got Joel Osteen over here, on the other hand, for professional people who they, they don't hang off the chandeliers, you know, like the, uh, like, the, uh, like the charismatics, but they like to be taught that, boy, if you just believe, you can be great. Uh, you can have anything you want. And shoot, I was just a technician, but look at me now. I'm pastoring 50,000 people. And you know, you can be great too if you just believe. A bunch of baloney. Look at Matthew 24. I tell you what you do when you preach the gospel. You're going to be spit upon. That's the majority report around the world. Only an American could come up with a prosperity gospel like that one. You know, just brush your teeth and comb your hair well and give a positive message and put on a good choir or a music group and you can get 50,000 people in an auditorium. Who could think of that except for Americans? It's heresy, and Jesus says you're going to have it. And then apathy. Because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold, and what happens is as you find the ethical standards in the culture going down, the ethical standards in the church go down, and then people lose their zeal. Right now, we've got an issue before the Supreme Court, don't we? And we're to be the people who love everybody, those of every sexual orientation. We love them equally. We give them civil rights. We do not abridge people's civil rights because of their sexual orientation. We better not. You tried that once with race relations. Didn't work too well, did it? Let's not try it with sexual orientation. That's not going to work well either. So civil rights for everybody. We believe this. 
but we don't believe that it's equally biblically valuable to have sex with uh, the same gender as it is with the opposite gender. There's a moral issue here. Civil rights, yes. Moral equivalence, no. And the people in this world are confused over it. And they're just fawning over all of those who, who proclaim that there's no moral difference. It's like being right-handed or left-handed, they say. No moral difference between heterosexual behavior and homosexual behavior. Well, there's a big difference between covenant marital sex and non-covenantal extramarital sex, whether heterosexual or homosexual. They're the same in that regard. They're both evil. But as the culture is going down, watch it. The church is going down with it. Churches are redefining biblical sexuality. Churches, not just the Supreme Court, not just the president, which he did at his inaugural in January, but churches are doing it. Now what's going to happen next? Jesus says, the zeal of many will grow cold. They will see that you have no ethical standard, that because the Bible says it, you're not bound to it. You're making up your own rules as you go. I don't want anything to do with you. And then lastly, and we'll close, notice this most important teaching in verses 13 and 14. Our success is secure. It is sure. First of all, we shall overcome. We are taught here that the one who endures to the end will be saved. Not the one who raises his hand in an evangelistic crusade. Not the one who walks forward down the middle aisle. Not the one who gets baptized. Not the one who doesn't get baptized. The one who perseveres to the end will be saved. The genuine Christian is the one whose Christianity lives with him to the very end. If his Christianity doesn't live with him to the very end, he wasn't saved in the first place. No matter whether he raised his hand, got baptized, walked an aisle, it's the one who perseveres to the end. Well, guess what? If you are a disciple of Jesus, you will persevere to the end. God guarantees it. And you can rest in that. And then lastly, notice that not only will we overcome, but the kingdom will prevail. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. Then the end will come. Here's what Jesus is saying. Regardless of the travail and the wildness in our culture, regardless of the sin that's all about us, regardless of the persecutions that come to us, gentlemen, you have one task, and that is to proclaim the gospel to the ends of the earth until he comes back. That's what Jesus is really teaching. Don't be thrown off by the eschatological chronological charts. Don't be thrown off by the heresies that come along. Keep your eyes right straight on Jesus Christ, proclaiming His Lordship and the expansion of His kingdom around the world until He comes back. And when He's gathered all of His people in, which He is set to do, He is determined to do it through the preaching of the gospel, He will come back. Don't think for a moment He's not coming back. He's coming back. And He's going to proclaim His gospel to all the world and then He'll return. That's the message Jesus is giving us. It is, as all apocalyptic should do, to inspire us to obedience and to mission in the Lord Jesus Christ. So let us all leave here today as apocalyptic Christians. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We need it. For we too are in danger of our love growing cold as lawlessness increases all around us in the society, and in the church. Lord, make of us men focused on Christ and your Lordship, focused on the proclamation of your gospel and your kingdom around the world, and focused on bringing you pleasure until we see you face to face. And oh, how we long for that day. And we make our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.